You're listening to Work in Progress. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Work in Progress explores the rapidly changing workplace through conversations with innovators, educators, and decision-makers, people with solutions to today's workforce challenges. All this week, Working Nation is reporting from the Disability Inn Conference in Dallas. The nonprofit's mission is to ensure that people with disabilities are actively included in the workforce fully and in a meaningful way. This week, we'll be talking to employers, workers, and job seekers about the challenges people with disabilities face in the labor market and efforts to make it more inclusive. Joining me on today's podcast is Josh Christensen, the Inclusion and Accessibility Practice Lead at Wheelhouse Group. And in that capacity, he recently joined our Working Nation Advisory Board. He also serves as the Project Director for the Partnership on Inclusive Apprenticeship. Josh, welcome to the podcast and to Working Nation. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here and to uh, join your team. We want to set the stage for the audience a little bit about when we talk about people with disabilities in the United States. I think you gave us a number once before. It was like one in five Americans have some sort of disability. Could you kind of give us a definition of that and how you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, one in five American adults in the United States now has identified as having a disability. That's from a CDC report, and it's a fairly conservative estimate. Um, Others say it is closer to one in four, but really disability often is broader than what many people think. We focus on the full spectrum of disability. So, you know, that's gonna include things people think about around vision, around hearing, motor disabilities related to limbs, uh, people often using wheelchairs, but it's also cognitive disabilities, which would cover things like autism, ADHD. It's about learning disabilities, mental health disabilities. There are some genetic diseases that like MS or others that would be considered a disability. So it is a broad spectrum of the impact it can have on a person. It's also important to consider that it can come at different times in your life. It's one of the largest quote unquote minority groups in the world but it may not be one you're born into. Um, It may have developed later in life. You may have an accident. With aging, many of us naturally acquire disabilities. And so from an employer perspective, I always encourage people to think about whether or not you know you're looking for it or someone has identified your employees, you do have employees with disabilities and you also may acquire employees with disabilities in their term with your company. One thing that was interesting to me is also while you said the number is probably closer to one in four, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't identify themselves. Uh, so yeah. this, they don't self-identify themselves as having a disability. It, it, does that impact how they you know, go about finding work? It definitely can. And there are um, multiple studies that looked into the reasons people don't Um, disclose. There are definitely impacts in looking for a job or say your ability to perform and succeed in the job. A couple of nuances I would mention is one is we talk about self-identification and self-disclosure. Identification might be a generic identification, maybe a large company survey, or for instance, there are some Department of Labor programs that capture data, someone can say, I I do have a disability or I do not have a disability, but it wouldn't be connected to them as a person or it's anonymized and it's not going to follow them 
around to their manager or their work. Whereas disclosure, disclosing your ability means like to your employer, to your manager, letting them know you have a disability, probably what that is, and beginning to discuss um, any accommodations that might be needed in the future. So a little bit of difference between identification and disclosure. To your question, the important thing is um, if you disclose, then you can have a conversation around what you need to be your best self, what you may need at different times, in different contexts, and different settings to do your job well. And so that is really the conversation that can and should happen with the employer as it is you know, part of the Americans with Disability Act and really the right of every individual that is employed to have the, the accommodations they need to do their job properly. In your role at Wheelhouse Group, is, is it that you advise different companies and employers on what can be done or should be done to make a more inclusive environment? Correct. Really through our work at Wheelhouse with the Department of Labor, we've learned so much about disability, how it plays out in the workplace, a lot about technology within the workplace. And we started to work on ourselves and our own company and making it more accessible and inclusive and being explicit about disability being a welcome part of our company. Through that, we kept learning more and some of our other clients asked for input and advice around how they could be more accessible and inclusive of people with disabilities. That could be anything from uh, looking at a website to make sure that it is designed in an accessible manner, could be advice on protocols and processes, best practices on helping people disclose accommodations, et cetera. And so we are looking to really grow that as a practice at Wheelhouse as it, it is a growing market and field. And we've seen that in the sector. Lots of other companies are paying more and more attention to it. It's both the right thing to do and it can help you be a differentiator, whether it's around competition and helps you be compliant when you're looking at legal issues as well. So there's a business case as well as just a humanity case for being a more inclusive workforce because you bring in people with different perspectives, different ideas, but you also, it feels that you have to really make the environment welcoming. Yeah, I have a background before disability, which is my last eight years and kind of the other traditional DEI without the A. So I worked in education and in workplaces around inclusion of people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. I really believe that the lens of disability helps you, enables you to do a better job of inclusion of all traditionally kind of marginalized and excluded groups. Any group that may not be well represented in your workplace that a company may feel it needs to have a stronger support or culture around inclusion. I think disability really helps people get to that and allows them to recruit and retain people at a better level. Part of that is that welcoming environment. Part of that is giving people what they need to succeed. And I talked about and mentioned accommodations earlier. I would just like to dispel proactively a myth that some people have that that can be expensive or problematic. About half of all employees that disclose they have a disability never need or require an accommodation from the employer. For the other half that do, the mean median expense for an employee, accommodating an employee on their lifetime with that company is less than $500. So it's not 
an expensive or problematic issue for employers and uh, the HR division, but it can make a really big difference in people feeling welcomed, included, empowered to bring their best self to work and do a good job. One thought I had was retention. You know, we talk about hiring a lot when uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking to different organizations and groups, but I've started talking a lot more about retention because mm-hmm. once you get someone in, someone's a good worker to help make that, again, that welcoming environment, helping them grow in their careers is very important. And I think I remember you telling us once before that someone with a disability, the population with disabilities is a much more, I'm going to say loyal employee. They stay longer on the, <laughs> on the job. Correct. There are a number of studies um, since we're at Disability and I should highlight they in conjuncture with Accenture and the American Association of People with Disabilities, AAPD, put out a study a few years ago that highlighted the business case of companies, Fortune 500 companies that pay attention to and are proactive about disability inclusion. And they found real hard numbers of them performing better when you look at revenue and net profit, et cetera. Um, so that they made the business case. And when, when they look at that, what that translates to is the specifics you're inquiring about, retention, training costs. People with disabilities in a variety of studies have been shown to, again, stay on a job longer. They have less absenteeism, which is often a misnomer that people would have that they'd have hires. They have less absenteeism. They have lower error rates, use lower sick days, a lot of things that people would are almost counterintuitive to disability. And all of those for employers can translate to less cost in training, right, with lower turnover and the loyalty and engagement piece you mentioned. And so the cost for employers tends to go down, and that's part of the, the return on investment and business case around hiring people with disabilities. There are others that I can mention too as well. Um, productivity is shown to be higher in a variety of studies. And so there are real value propositions to people hiring people with disabilities. It's not just doing it because it's a feel-good thing or ethical and moral thing. It is that too, and we should do things that are the right thing to do. But from my position, I find it very encouraging that there are real and hard statistics that make a business case for the inclusion of people with disabilities. One of the things that happens at the Disability In conference each year is a report on companies that are doing a great job at making Mm -hmm. sure that they offer this inclusive environment. And I know that there are over 500 CEOs who signed on a letter from Disability and saying, we are going to be those people. We are going to be the ones. And they're big companies, which is fantastic. What's the kind of overall feeling? Do you think the people are employers specifically getting over these misnomers, these misperceptions about people with disabilities and are improving the, their place in the workforce? Yeah. And I think to the last point, they're doing it because they see it as an advantage for themselves. So what you referenced, the disability equality index that um, Disability and runs um, does have all these top scoring companies, CEOs signing on to make a difference. And the truth is, it's because they see it as a benefit. I mentioned some about hiring specifically people with disabilities, but also companies in the market are seeing that you have advantages, competitive advantages with other people that aren't people with individuals. So an example would be, especially millennials and Gen Z, 
they have been shown to be much more inclined to accept a job offer of a company that is representing and promoting their inclusion efforts. And that goes to disability as well. Being proactive around your, not just your hiring of individuals, but also your processes, your internal tools that a company uses can help you avoid any legal issues, any compliance issues. And I think it has become a competitive edge, especially when you think of like HR information systems or the the technology and platforms that people use, because there are legal ramifications to not being accessible and inclusive. And so that may have been the catalyst, but now people say, wow, we're making these tools. We want to promote that we make these tools that are inclusive and all kinds of people can use them. We want to have that be a competitive advantage when we're going out and trying to you know, recruit and retain people at our company. There are multiple studies that show that is helpful. So it's not just including the people with disabilities. It's when you do that, when you embrace inclusion of people with disabilities, you're also able to engage, encourage uh, other employees to feel strongly and positive about their workplace. In the uh, intro, I mentioned that you were the project director for the Partnership on Inclusive Apprenticeship. Tell me what PIA is. Sure. It's been around a little over two years. Recently in the United States, this is a a project out of the U.S. Department of Labor, Office of Disability Employment Policy. And the Department of Labor is encouraging the use of the notion of apprenticeship increasingly in the United States. And that's been proven to be very successful in kind of traditional trades. So if you think about electricians and plumbers and construction, they've been using apprenticeship effectively a long time. But now we have certain sectors, high growth, high demand sectors, Department of Labor calls them, where there's kind of a a skills gap. There are industries that we know we need to hire people and there aren't enough people there and colleges aren't graduating them enough. And so we are looking to increase apprenticeship as a tool in other sectors. And so we focus on clean energy, IT, information technology, healthcare and finance as places that do have a skills gap, need to recruit more people to fill the jobs that are needed by these American companies. And apprenticeship is a way to do that. And so the partnership on inclusive apprenticeship is looking at that and just really working with entities that exist already, apprenticeship programs, companies, et cetera, and making sure or helping as we can to make sure that they're inclusive accessible for people with disabilities, because we want people with disabilities to be able to access these new opportunities um, and benefit for these quality jobs that are that are opening up and will be around for the foreseeable future. You said that this is about two years old. Do you have any numbers, any statistics on how many companies, how many people have taken part in these yeah. uh, programs? We do. Uh, they're not going to bowl you over, but you know we're a small shop, but we have, let's see now, We work almost directly with 14, what we would call intermediary partners. So these are people, entities, organizations that are running apprenticeship programs in those sectors I mentioned. And so we meet them where they are. Some are big, some are small. Some have been doing apprenticeship forever. Some haven't. Some focus exclusively on people with disabilities. We have one group that just does cohorts of people with disabilities. Some have never even thought about or heard about trying to kind of see people with disabilities as a talent pool. And we just meet them where they are to try to get, you know, one step closer to accessibility inclusion, to improve their programs 
um, as we can where they need help. And so our partnership and our kind of technical assistance that we provide looks different depending on the partner. I don't want to fully misstate, but I think out of those almost 14 partners we have in this calendar year, it's going to impact around 2,500, almost 3,000 apprentices. So that are in those programs. And so helping make those more inclusive and accessible, we hope to impact the current ones and then also those in the future. Many of our partners have ambitious goals to scale up their apprenticeship programs over time. And so laying the groundwork now for accessibility will even boost those numbers in the future. You talked about clean energy. That is an area that we have talked about at Working Nation a lot, that there's a big growth opportunity in that area around the country. What kind of programs are you involved with that? Unlike some of the other sectors, clean energy has even a a tougher gap around apprenticeship than some of the other ones. And so some of the folks we're working with aren't necessarily running their apprenticeship programs, but they're workforce related or they're industry associations. And so we're socializing the idea or providing them with supports. So we work with uh, American Council of Renewable Energies. IREC is one of the larger groups that's the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, Solar Energy International, Renewables Forward. All of these are generally kind of associations, groups of companies and entities that are looking to build their workforce in clean energy and looking for ways and partners to tap in and grow their training so they can bring them on board. And there's some exciting new new growth. Uh, Florida just recently announced a huge solar installation registered apprenticeship program. And that is with a couple of our um, partners as well. And so we hope to see more of that. And so our goal is to just, again, try to inform them with the best practices out there, provide them with resources, Um, technical assistance, make any connections we can so that as they're growing these programs, we can try to ensure that people with disabilities will be able to access them and succeed in those opportunities. If I had a disability and I was thinking, oh, I want to be a part of an apprenticeship, is there a Mm -hmm. place someone can go to find that information? Yes. So apprenticeship.gov is the largest portal that's run by the Department of Labor's Office of Apprenticeship. And there you'll be able to search by location, by um, kind of interests or sectors, and they'll pull up all sorts of things. There are some resources specifically to people with disabilities that they promote on those sites, but they aren't separate portals. There aren't generally like a pool that you would go to and apply um, if you're a person with disabilities. Specifically in states, there are entities called vocational rehab that are charged with supporting um, veterans, veterans with disabilities, people with disabilities, other underemployed groups. And they would definitely be a great place for anyone to look at and apply. You get support from a counselor and they would definitely be able to direct you to apprenticeship programs and are equipped and trained to specifically support accessibility and inclusion of people with disabilities. And that's kind of a state by state office. I think what you want, uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, though, is what you want is that it not be separate in the end, that everybody is included in the uh, talent pool, in the job, mm-hmm. you know, the pool of potential talent. It doesn't have to be a separate entity. Correct. And that, I mean, that is the end ultimate goal of the work we do around accessibility 
and inclusion of people with disabilities. One kind of example or parallel I give with that to your point is for many years, uh, I ran another project out of Department of Labor and Office of Disability Employment Policy called the Partnership on Employment and Accessible Technology. My colleagues still run it, it's doing great. And it looks really at the technology that people use. And an example of that would be, there used to be, before technology advanced too long, what they would call assistive technology, where someone kind of have an add-on. Say I had a disability and I was at the workplace and I had to have to get an add-on to make sure I could read something or access uh, a portal. Increasingly with technology, what they're doing is they're developing things so that anyone and everyone with different abilities could, could access them. And so kind of to your point, the way we can move in the world, whether it's technology or kind of a broader company culture, is to think about like a universal design, human-centered design, people approach to, to work and workplaces. And then we will just be better at, you know, um, again, recruiting, retaining, supporting, engaging um, our workforce, and it won't need to be separated and segregated. And you won't have to go to a certain place to be able to get something to access your company's, you know, time, time and pay portal. It'll just be designed into things. And likewise, when you think about inclusion of, of DEIA broadly, right? I mean, intersectionality is a real thing. If anyone is trying to recruit and retain veterans, women, uh, Black Americans, people who are formerly incarcerated, all of those you're going to be better able to do if you come from an inclusion and accessibility perspective, because that perspective is, is one of universal design. And you're trying to do the broadest possible uh, range to allow people to engage with success. And so, yeah, I, I, I hope that this notion of accessibility almost would kind of fall by the wayside and it would really just be about equity and inclusion writ large. And you wouldn't have to even think about these specific demographics or what you need to do or how you access resources because we're just better at supporting our employees and our colleagues and our peers in, in our workplace. But we probably have a little ways before we get there. Well, thank you, Josh, for sharing that perspective, because I, I think you're absolutely right. And sadly, I think we do have a little ways till we get there. But I want to thank you for being on the Work in Progress podcast today. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here and uh, look forward to learning at the conference with you. I've been speaking with Josh Christensen, the special consultant to the Wheelhouse Group, and in that capacity, a new member of our Working Nation Advisory Board. He's also project director for the Partnership on Inclusive Apprenticeship. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, editor-in-chief of Working Nation. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>